There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, with testimony ending on a tumultuous day for our country. When our doubts about whether policing is just irreconcilably broken when it comes to people of color have no choice but to crystallize with two other cases of people being killed by police coming more and more into focus. Former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter made her first court appearance today, four days after she shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright. And in Chicago, authorities released body camera video that shows a 13-year-old boy being shot and killed by by a police officer on March 29th. We'll have more on those stories coming up. But first, a big day in the Chauvin trial, a trial that many of you have been closely following on live national TV for more than two weeks. The 45 witnesses from police officers to forensic scientists to George Floyd's own brother all culminated today with the defense resting its case after just two days of testimony without putting Chauvin himself on the stand. We did hear from him from the first time today, however, in a pretrial hearing in which he availed himself of his Fifth Amendment rights. Have you made a decision uh, today whether you intend to testify or whether you intend to invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh, I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. You may also recall from yesterday, defense witness Dr. David Fowler, a forensic pathologist who was paid to blame everything other than Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd, including carbon monoxide poisoning. A frankly bizarre theory stemming from Floyd's face pointing toward an exhaust pipe of a gas electric hybrid police squad car. For the record, Fowler had no data on how much carbon monoxide was actually being released or even if the car was on. Well, today, the prosecution called one of its most impactful witnesses, pulmonologist Dr. Martin Tobin, to refute this so-called expert's claim. The protein in the blood that carries the oxygen, how much of that hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen? And we know in Mr. Floyd that it was 98% saturated. Does that tell us anything whatsoever about what the carbon monoxide content could have been at a maximum. In yes, it does. It tells us that if if the hemoglobin is saturated at 98%, it tells you all there was for everything else is 2%. And so the maximum amount of carbon, carbon monoxide would be 2%. Was at most 2%? At, at most 2%. Normal. Very, I mean, which is normal. Again, Dr. Martin Tobin, a lung and critical care expert, testifying that car exhaust did not kill George Floyd. But you knew that already. Closing arguments are set for Monday, after which the jury will be sequestered during deliberations. We could see a verdict as soon as next week. And joining me now is MSNBC correspondent Shaquille Brewster, who's been following the story in Minneapolis. Uh, so give us I want to get both sides of this piece uh, for uh, for our viewers tonight, Shaq. Um, the case itself, um, your observations of just how things are playing out at this point. 
Well, Joy, we really watched this case wrap up fairly quickly. We walked into de- to today expecting to hear from more witnesses. We know that there was a witness that was slated for yesterday who we thought was going to be the first witness today. Instead, we saw that surprise moment where we heard Derek Chauvin's voice in the courtroom for the very first time. It was not his testimony. It was instead him saying that he was going to invoke his Fifth Amendment protections and not testify. We also heard some back and forth over that claim that we heard from Dr. Fowler yesterday, the defense says witness who said and suggested that George Floyd uh, died. One of the reasons, at least, was carbon monoxide poisoning. The defense uh, kept on with that claim, and we heard the prosecution bring back that rebuttal witness, Dr. Tobin, to wrap up. It was a quick direct examination, a quick cross-examination, but it really set and laid uh, uh, through to the end the two sides of this uh, argument. You have the defense pointing to George Floyd's heart condition and pointing to his drug use and saying that was the reason why he died, while the prosecution has spent weeks saying that it was the use of force and the knee on George Floyd's neck and upper back. That is what led to George Floyd's death. So now this will be in the hands of the jury. What we know is to come is uh, closing arguments will take place on Monday. After that, the jury will get uh, the jury instructions. That's something that the prosecution and the defense, they're still arguing about right now. They had a, a late afternoon court hearing about what exactly they want included in those instructions. And then it'll be up to the jury. The judge warned the jury uh, earlier today that uh, they should pack a bag. And, you know, it's up to them how long they take to deliberate. But after this long trial, it'll be in their hands uh, at some point next week, Joy. Yeah, I I, I don't envy them. This is a pretty big burden for them to have to carry. Let's talk about the community, because you've been out and about. I've been watching your great reporting um, just in and around um, the Minneapolis area. How are people reacting to the developments as they're going on? You know, it's really a mix. I mean, first, it's hard to miss the idea that this trial is happening and that a verdict is uh, coming up soon. I mean, look behind me. You see the armored vehicles, the fencing. Uh, if you go around the downtown area, you see a lot of businesses boarded up. That has only expanded. We know thousands of National Guard troops are deployed in this area, not only Minneapolis, but of course, Brooklyn uh, Center with the shooting of Dante Wright. So you, you have that tension there, but it also is important to note that many people that I talked to, people who I met uh, during the protests last summer, they are avoiding this. They have not been paying attention to the trial. They say it just brings them more trauma. So they know that a verdict is coming. They know that uh, uh, there will be that decision and some sort of reaction to it. But you have a mix of people who are laser focused on it and people who are trying their best to avoid the reality. Yeah, you can certainly understand that because it is. It's a lot. It's a lot right now. Uh, Shaquille Brewster. Shaq, you've been doing a great job. Right. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank uh, you. And joining me now, cheers. Joining me now is MSNBC legal contributor Katie Fang and Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. So, Katie, I think for every um, uh, lawyer uh, and, uh, you know, former and current prosecutor, today was a tense day to watch the prosecution have to walk a pretty narrow tightrope um, because there was a mistrial floated uh, by the judge. Can you just walk us through what happened today uh, and uh, what Prosecutor Blackwell had to pull off with Dr. Tobin? Yeah, so 
Most of the legal drama, Joy, today happened behind the scenes and outside the presence of the jury. There was a late disclosed lab report that Dr. Andrew Baker, the Hennepin County medical examiner who conducted the only autopsy of George Floyd, within that late produced lab result was actual information about carbon monoxide, which we had heard about from Dr. Fowler for the very yeah. first time when he took the stand on behalf of the defense yesterday. But the reason why it created drama was the judge said that this late disclosure caused too much prejudice for the defense and excluded the use of that lab result. And so the judge said to Mr. Blackwell on behalf of the prosecution, make sure that Dr. Tobin, when he's called as the rebuttal witness, doesn't mention it. If I hear it and the jury hears it, it's a mistrial. So you can imagine after weeks and dozens of witnesses how nervous we all were. But actually, it was a win for the prosecution. Why? Because normally you have the prosecution's case, the defense's case, and then the defense rests its case and the jury gets to deliberate. The state got to end the trial in terms of the presentation of the facts and the evidence on a high note with the rebuttal witness of Dr. Tobin. And so the jury got to see the very likable, very relatable, very understandable yeah. Dr. Tobin say very clearly that there was 2% capability of carbon monoxide in Mr. Floyd's blood. But also Mr. Blackwell said, you're not going to confuse the jury, right? <laughs> Right, Dr. Fowler, right, Dr. Fowler. And so the jury was able to hear it. So again, no mistrial. Jury gets to deliberate starting on Monday, but they have to be sensitive to the fact that there was Dante Wright's killer was in court yeah. today, Kim Potter, and that the release of the Chicago PD video of that poor 13-year-old boy, Adam Toledo, was released. And the jurors may or may not be aware of that right now, Joy. And then, right. And so the, the tension, Jason, around this, it, it couldn't be tighter, right? Because you've got multiple killings right. and people, just because they're in Minneapolis, haven't, doesn't mean they haven't heard about the Virginia take uh, down of this uh, army officer or the case in Texas and all of these killings and now a 13-year-old in Chicago. I, I just want to uh, go through some polling, which, you know, polling isn't everything, but it, we're going to use it tonight just to sort of set a stage here. Monmouth University did a poll and asked people what they think the impact on race relations would be of an acquittal. If it if it were to happen and it says if Chauvin is found not guilty of murder, um, five percent say it would be positive for race relations. Sixty three percent say it would be negative. Twenty nine percent say it wouldn't even make a difference, which is sort of sad. But when you break it down by partisanship, it's quite different. White Americans who are Democrats and independents and white Americans who are Republicans have very different views on this. Fifty six percent of white American Democrats and independents say bad for race relations. White Republicans don't seem to think so. So this trial, like everything else, is about our politics, Jason. Yeah, first off, I want to know who this 5% is that think that Derek Chauvin getting off would be good for America. I'm just, I'm just curious who those people are and if they work for Tucker. Um, but but here's, here's the thing to, to remember, Joy, and I, I've said this all along. Demographics are destiny, right? The, the, the makeup of jury pools has so much to do with whether or not we're going to get the justice we want. And that's how America sort of looks at these kinds of issues. It is very clear that what's happening in this trial today can't be separated from what everyone has seen all along. We've had two additional shootings come out since this trial began. I think at this point, it's impossible for Americans to look at what's happening with Derek Chauvin and just say, oh, this is an isolated incident. I can't compare it to everything else. But here's, I think, the most dangerous thing, Joy. And, and I've said all along, look, I, I, it looks it, it's a very hard case for the defense. I think Chauvin will probably end up being convicted. But 
He is not just the sacrificial lamb that American policing can use to say this is a bad apple and avoid the longer right. conversation. And that's what my concern is. Even the people who say that his conviction will help race relations, if nothing changes in policing, then he was just a scapegoat. It was a makeup call for a much larger problem. Yeah. And when Pat Robertson comes out and says, this is terrible. I got the two different weapons here. Right. You should have been able to tell the difference. This is terrible. We need to start hiring better quality of cops. Like when Pat Robertson is going there, uh, let me very quickly, I don't know if we have the time, but I just want to play for our audience. We may not have time to have our audience, our, our, our guests react to it. But here are just Derek Chauvin's former colleagues, just the cops who testified. Take a listen. Right. Is this an MPD trained neck restraint? No, sir. Has it ever been? Not to my neck restraint, no, sir. I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. All right. Yeah. And as part of your training within the Minneapolis Police Department policies, uh, is there an obligation to provide medical intervention when necessary? Absolutely. Is it your belief then that this particular uh, form of restraint, if that's what you, if that's what we'll call it, uh, uh, in fact violates departmental policy? I absolutely agree that violates our policy. And ladies and gentlemen, I have never seen a, a cop, let alone that many police officers, testify against a fellow police officer. If Derek Chauvin is convicted, it will be because of that and because of Mr. Tobin, uh, who I want to take a class from. Katie Fang and Jason Johnson want to take a class with both of y'all, too, as well, because you guys are great professors as well. Thank y'all very much. And up next on The Readout, a deeper look at America's policing crisis. The officer, the police officer, former police officer, who shot and killed Dante Wright, makes her first appearance in court. As we get our first look at the body cam video in the killing of a 13-year-old boy by a Chicago police officer. Plus, the government finally connects the dots between the 2016 Trump campaign and Russian intelligence. No collusion, you say? No. Collusion. And then there's tonight's absolute worst. Dating back to your days when in, in school when you seem to argue that African-Americans were genetically superior to uh, Caucasians. Nope, no, sir. Nope, that did not happen. The shameless and embarrassing Republican effort to smear a black woman who is in line to lead the DOJ Civil Rights Division. The readout continues after this. Protests continued last night in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, where with 22 people arrested after the officer who killed Dante Wright was charged with second degree manslaughter. Kim Potter, who faces up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $20,000, was released from custody after posting a $100,000 bond. Potter appeared in court today where the judge set the date for her next hearing at May 17th. Wright's family, Wright's family members addressed the charges today at a news conference. Unfortunately, there's never going to be justice for us. The justice would bring our son home to us. Charge her. Charge her to the max sentence. We can't have him back. So why should she get back in her life? Manslaughter? On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. 
everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Y'all see the difference? This is a taser. This is a taser. But no, my nephew was killed with this. A Glock. Meanwhile, tensions are also high in Chicago, where police today released body cam footage in the fatal shooting of a seventh grader last month. 13-year-old Adam Toledo was shot and killed on March 29th. Before the video was released, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot appealed to residents for calm, calling the footage excruciating. And we should warn you, it is disturbing. And we're going to freeze the video just before the shot is fired. Please stop! Stop right now! Hey, show me your head! Stop it! Stop it! Shots fired! Shots fired! Get an ambulance up here now! Okay, so this is a textbook example of why in our job in the media, we need to treat statements from the police with the same skepticism that we would treat utterances from any other government entity. Because what police say in statements is not necessarily the truth. It's their claim. And that claim, like any other, deserves to be interrogated before we take it as fact. The officer who shot this 13-year-old boy claimed in his report to his bosses that he repeatedly told the teenager to drop it, which you can't hear. You just heard it. You heard him yell it on the body cam video. And that Toledo refused to show his hands and was shot in the chest when he turned toward the officer. Police and prosecutors also alleged that the 13-year-old had a gun. But a still frame from the video shows the kid's hands up and apparently empty at the time the officer shot him. Those two things the police official account and what we see in that still and in that video don't quite track, do they? Last weekend, a prosecutor said during a court appearance that Toledo was holding a gun as he turned toward the officer. Well, today, the Cook County, the Cook County attorney, uh, state's attorney, said that that prosecutor failed to fully inform himself before speaking. So that doesn't track either. Police also claimed a weapon was discovered at the scene, as have prosecutors. The officer who shot Adam Toledo has not been charged and is currently on administrative leave. And we are left to sort out the truth of this story from here, as are authorities in Chicago, to say nothing of the family of a now very much dead 13-year-old child. Joining me now is former Detroit Police Chief Ralph Godby and Eliza Darris, Eliza Darris, Minneapolis area activist and organizer. And thank you both um, for being here. And Chief Godby, Sorry, but, you know, the truth of the matter is people just assume that police, when they put out a statement, are always telling the truth. But that just isn't true, is it? We have lost uh, the benefit of the doubt, and we've lost it a long time ago. Unfortunately, uh, our credibility relative to you can trust a police officer statement. Uh, we have wasted that capital with the community and with the advent of the cell phone camera and now the body worn cameras. Uh, the camera, it, it's not our lying eyes. We see what we see. 
Now, in this instant, uh, I will say the officer had a split second to make a decision. What you don't know, which I was able to see on the video, uh, using a technology called Shot Spotters, it's a gunshot triangulation system. It points you in the area where the gun shot came from, number one. Number two, there was a call for service that I heard where the gunshots were called out. So the officer had a reasonable belief or suspicion that there was a gun in the area. Where you lose credibility is when you say you saw the gun and when you see the steel frame, you do not see the gun. Uh, there right. is a gun in another frame from another perspective mm -hmm. uh, that but absent a gunshot residue test, we will not know necessarily if that was a gun that was uh, possessed by Adam. But, you know, here's the question, because I, I don't know. Did he have a split second? Because let, I, I want, let me tell you what Ben Crump said. Uh, I'm going to get Eliza in just a moment. But I have another question for you, Chief Gobby. Here's what Ben Crump said about the way police treat uh, white people who have known to just killed a bunch of people and the way they treat black uh, random motorists. The Parkland High School killer, they followed him. They took him alive. The white man who just killed the people in the Asian spot in Atlanta, they took him alive. But yet, when you have a black person, Stefante, who ain't killed nobody, they shoot first and ask questions later. See, Chief Gobby, the problem that I have with the he had a split second decision, the Parkland killer just killed a bunch of people. He, they knew he had a gun. P police took a lot more than a second to decide what they were going to do about him before they calmly took him into custody. Um, you can go all the way through it. The, pe the guy who shot, right. uh, shot up multiple spas in Atlanta, multiple. You knew he had a gun because he killed a bunch of people with it. When they rolled up on him, they had a reasonable case to suspect that he might have had a gun and might have killed them. They didn't really use the gun fast. With this 13-year-old child, they didn't wait 10 seconds before opening up on him like it was a drive-by. He didn't wait to assess what that child was doing, and that child was standing there with his hands up with nothing in them. That's the reason people now don't buy that he had a split-second decision. No, and Joy, fundamentally, I agree with you. I've made the same arguments very publicly. Uh, I've become a pariah somewhat in the police community, but I do have to give some perspective because there are other things that transpired as well. Different than Chauvin, who was just very aloof to the condition or didn't even give a damn about George Floyd's condition. Immediately, this officer rendered aid, started doing chest compressions, tried to do everything he can to aid the young man. Not excusing at all. And you make an excellent point, And I do agree with Attorney Crump. But that's why we can't just look anecdotally at each individual situation, even though there are lessons to be learned. But we've got to look collectively and systemically and at the end of the day, black people still end up killed by the police. Yeah. And Liza, I want to throw it over to you because I, I need to get some other perspective besides my own angry uh, mom perspective. But please tell me, you know, where do, where, where do you sit here in, in watching these death after death after death, children, women in their bed? It, it's, it's a lot for me, but I know for you, you're much closer to it as an activist. Yes. Um, and thank you so much for having me on on the show. It's an absolute blessing. I've been watching you for many years and I really Thank respect um, the manner in which you deliver truth to the people. Um, I would say that just watching that clip is very horrific. Um, and um, much of what we see and what, much of what we have been seeing is extraordinarily and exceedingly uh, horrific. Uh, and these are traumas that we are repeatedly seeing again and again and again and again. 
even if aid was rendered to that young man, I wouldn't say that that, that absolves any level of responsibility or shows uh, any level of, of guilt or anything like that. I mean, likely there was a departmental policy that required uh, this officer with the usage of force uh, to then render aid. So, I mean, so that was likely a required standard that the department had. Uh, that was a split second decision uh, that uh, in many other instances, when you have a blonde haired, blue eyed boy, I think that they put multiple other beats in between their determination of utilizing force, particularly deadly force. But somehow we aren't uh, finding ourselves on the other end of these multiple beats that they're putting between their decision uh, to use deadly force and not use deadly force. And it's extremely frustrating uh, to keep hearing the same drumbeat of, of you know, their, their alleged need uh, and their alleged fear uh, to use force based off of an alleged need to, to you know, uh, uh, kill some type of a threat. And so to see this young man turn with his hands up and, and to, to not hear more commands, uh, a singular command, and then to see this officer actually uh, lie on his report, um, it's not shocking to me. Uh, literally, I'm probably maybe two minutes walking from where George Floyd was murdered. I can get out of my house and walk two minutes and I'll be right there at George Floyd Square. And I, you know, and let me just walk back a little bit about what happened on the night that they murdered George Floyd. And so we had began getting, I'm a, a local organizer, been organizing for several years here in the Twin Cities. And we had began getting calls from a mother whose uh, son was, was, was uh, murdered by, by the police. She had begun hearing that there was a man who was murdered by uh, the Minneapolis police uh, and that it supposedly happened really close to where I live. I had heard nothing about that, so I left my house and I went and I began talking to people who was locally there. The people locally there began telling me that, yes, the police actually killed a man that they put, I was told at the time, their foot on someone's neck. I then began questioning some of the officers. I even called the chief. And then the chief and others said that that there was a medical emergency that led to this young, uh, that, that led to George Floyd's death. And that was the, the reports, the official reports that was coming from the police department. But that was totally and wholly different than the reports that I had began um, getting mm -hmm. from people who was actually on the scene itself. And so right here in the instant situation, we see the same exact situation in which yeah. we have these reports that were given out by by you know police officers that now with our own eyes, we see are fundamentally different uh, than, yeah. than the facts. Yeah. And that is the problem. And that is why it's so important for us on this end of the desk here. Uh, as far as journalists, we can't just take these reports as fact. There is what someone says and what they claim. These are claims. They are not statements of fact. And when they're coming from police, you just can't say, assume that they're factual because we then get the video. And it turns out it ain't quite true. Uh, Ralph Godby, uh, it's always great talking with you. And Eliza Darris, um, thank you very much. Welcome to the Readout family. And thank you for being here. And we'll have you back. Still ahead. Thank you for having me. Cheers. The Biden administration is slapping new sanctions on Russia over its cyber attacks and election interference. Plus, new information disclosed in those sanctions allows us to connect some very important collusion related dots about the Trump campaign. We'll be right back. Where there's an interest in the United States to work with Russia, we should. And we will. Where Russia seeks to violate the interests of the United States, we will respond. We'll always stand in defense of our country, 
our institutions, our people, and our allies. That was President Biden today announcing a new round of sanctions on Russia, targeting 40 entities and individuals in that country. In doing so, he's striking back at the Kremlin for their repeated attacks on the U.S., including their election interference in 2020 and the solar wind cyber attack. That's the massive hacking operation discovered late last year, which compromised dozens of government agencies and private companies. This is the first time the U.S. has formally accused Russia of that cyber attack on us after the former president had turned a blind eye. In contrast, President Biden is putting his money where his mouth is. In an interview last month, Biden readily agreed that Vladimir Putin is a killer, whereas Donald Trump defended Putin from that exact same charge. So, you know, Vladimir Putin, you think he's a killer? Mm hmm. I do. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent? While Trump was complicit in the face of Russian aggression, Biden's hard line against the Kremlin has left Putin rattled, according to Masha Gessen. Now Putin is acting out, using Ukraine as a pawn in his game of chicken against the U.S. He's amassing troops on the border of that country in an attempt to provoke a confrontation. And Russian state TV is warning that an all-out cyber war with the U.S. is inevitable. It comes after Putin threw his chief political rival, Alexander Navalny, in prison, where he's being threatened with force feeding during his hunger strike and apparently deteriorating health wise. And just last week, Putin signed a law allowing him to stay in power for another 15 years until 2036. Meanwhile, today's announcement on sanctions included other explosive news. For the first time, the U.S. government confirmed that Russian intelligence actually received the privileged campaign data that Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort handed over to his associate, Konstantin Kalimnik, in 2016. And if that's not collusion with a foreign adversary, I don't know what is. Joining me now is Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado, who served as an impeachment manager during Trump's first impeachment. And Congressman, I want to take you back um, to uh, some of the evidence that Donald Trump had an interest in having Russia help him win the election. Um, you will recognize this uh, video. Take a listen. I think I'd get very, along very well with Vladimir Putin. I just think so. Putin said Donald Trump is a genius. He's going to be the next great leader of the United States. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. You don't think it's phony that they, the Russians, tried to meddle in the election? You believe that? That I don't know. I believe that President Putin really feels, and he feels strongly, that he did not meddle in our election. I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. What I say to him is none of your business. It, does this new information provide the smoking gun that the impeachment lacked uh, at that time? Well, hi, Joy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, and, and that walk down memory lane just actually makes me feel... Uh, so relieved that Joe Biden is sitting in the White House right now. Uh, I mean, how the stark of a contrast is it between Joe Biden's deliberate, focused, strategic, uh, tough uh, approach to Russia? No tweeting, no bluster, no chest pounding uh, compared to Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, listen, the, the, uh, the signals were there all along, right? We have known for a long time that Russia is a threat to us, uh, that they've uh, been attacking us that they've been meddling in our elections, and they haven't been doing so equally, that they have favored Donald Trump for a very long time, which obviously raises the question of why. You know, the obvious answer 
to why is that he was soft on them, uh, that he allowed Vladimir Putin to do whatever he wanted. Uh, plus, you add to that that Donald Trump was able to accomplish something for Vladimir Putin that Vladimir Putin was never able to accomplish on his own. That is, he brought chaos and dysfunction uh, to our government and to our society uh, that Vladimir Putin couldn't have dreamed of ever bringing on his own. So yeah. uh, it makes sense that he would he would meddle in this way. I have to ask, do you think that this was a failing of the Mueller report, that they didn't pursue this line of reasoning? They, 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 they assessed the collusion because it is not a specific criminal offense, nor is it a term of art in criminal law. They didn't really pursue collusion. But they did find that polling data, Manafort's uh, instruction, and this is from the Mueller report, included sending internal polling data prepared for the Trump campaign. But Manafort also briefed Kalimnik on the state of the Trump campaign and Manafort's plan to win the election. The briefing encompassed the campaign's messaging and its internal polling data. And this is what's key. It focused on battleground states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. Those were three of the four. The three of those four states delivered the election to Trump. Do you wish that Mueller had gone a little further down that road to provide more information earlier? Because we could have known this then. Yeah, there are things that I wish they had investigated and that they had made more clear in the report. That's certainly true. There's no doubt about that. But do I think it would have made a difference? Um, I don't think so, necessarily. I mean, listen, we have not lacked evidence of Donald Trump's wrongdoing uh, at any course in his presidency, right? He incited an insurrection that resulted in the death of a police officer and uh, the um, uh, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, and yet uh, the Senate still didn't impeach him. So, you know, whether one additional thing or a bit of evidence would have changed the course yeah. of history here or resulted in the impeachment, I I'm not sure. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, what, what I've been saying all along is this. We would get the facts. Right? We've, we've yeah. been saying this. Uh, you can not call witnesses. We'll get there eventually. And we're seeing that happen. Last question. How much danger do you think that we remain in vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia? And how much danger is Ukraine in? Uh, I think the danger is high and I think it's increasing. I, you know, we underestimate Putin and Russia at our own peril. You know, Vladimir Putin couldn't care less about delivering health care to the Russian people, couldn't care less about economic development. Vladimir Putin wakes up every morning and goes to bed at night trying to think about how to destroy American democracy and to, to uh, sow dysfunction in our in our country. That's what he thinks yeah. about. And I think we are would be wise to start taking him seriously. And it's good to see the, the administration uh, and President Biden doing so. Indeed, that and being president for life, which apparently he also uh, aspires to be. Uh, Congressman Jason Crow, thank you very much for being here tonight. And up next, tonight's absolute worst. Stay with us. Kristen Clark is set to make history as President Biden's pick to become the first woman and first woman of color to lead the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Her story is the American story, the daughter of Jamaican immigrants who grew up in public housing. Her nomination comes at a critical time in America and for the department and after months of social justice protests. She has vowed to use her experience as an accomplished civil rights attorney and the single mother of a black teenager to make racial equality a top priority. I remain committed to the promise of working every day to build a world of equal opportunity for all a world where no 16-year-old is target, uh, the target of hateful language, a world where no young man is racially profiled. I dream of a world that values his mind, his heart, and his exceptional soccer skills. 
and does not push him aside because of the color of his skin. I dream of that for every child in America. Now, you would think that that is an admirable goal, but not to the Republican men of the Senate Judiciary Committee, no, no, who spent their time lecturing the Harvard and Columbia graduate on the subject of race. I want to read a non-exhaustive list of, of um, elements of the American society, uh, elements that you have at one point or another described in the past as racist. Police departments, federal agencies, Airbnb, election laws designed to combat fraud, the workplace, America's DNA, the Virginia Military Institute, the healthcare industry, federal courts, and the Department of Justice. Now, you've worked uh, uh, for the Department of Justice and, and with the federal courts. Were those institutions racist when you worked there? So, um, Senator, I don't have the, the context for the list that you just um, Have you described through. them as racist in the past? I generally use the term discrimination. I'm a, a lawyer. I follow the facts. Was Officer Darren Wilson justified or not in the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014. As a private citizen, there is something that feels unfair. And, the um, Department of Justice I, issued an 87-page report. That's not a private, that's not grand jury sensitive information. That's not secrets. An 87-page report released by Benita Gupta when she ran the office that you aspire to lead. It concluded that the shooting was justified. All right. Well, my you, you, you obviously do not want to take the position that the shooting was justified despite what Eric Holder and Benita Gupta have said, given the fact that you won't answer the simple question yes or no. Well, that guy, Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, seems to thrive on the politics of vindictiveness. In 2014, Cotton reportedly put a hold on the nomination of Cassandra Butts to be the ambassador, of the, the ambassador to the Bahamas. She died of leukemia while waiting for Cotton to lift that hold on that black woman. I would also like to point out that hours after Clark's hearing yesterday, Cotton joined Senators Hawley and Cruz, fellow members of the committee, uh, in, uh, members of the committee, in voting against a bipartisan bill on anti-Asian hate crimes. So, my friends, today's ignominious award for the absolute worst goes to the Republican men of the Senate Judiciary Committee who managed to simultaneously mansplain and whitesplain at, that, at this accomplished woman. But wait, there's more. There's one person who brought the stupid in such a spectacular way that we had to set him aside for special scrutiny. And that is next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Republicans came to Kristen Clark's confirmation hearing, guns blazing with lots of vitriol in their little spirits for some reason. I mean, something, something about Kristen Clark just really seemed to get under their skin. I, I just can't figure out quite what that was. Perhaps they were just more interested in scoring brownie points with their xenophobic friends at Fox News than actually giving Clark a fair hearing. I mean, it was something else about her. I'll just noodle on it along with you. Clark is President Biden's choice to lead the civil rights division at the Department of Justice. But here's what's fun. Some of these guys, like Texas Senator John Cornyn, 
didn't seem to do their homework before coming to class. Take a look at this exchange. You seem to argue that African-Americans were genetically superior to uh, Caucasians. Is that correct? Um, no, Senator. Um, that I believe you're referring to an op-ed that I wrote at the age of 19 about the bell curve theory, a racist book that equated DNA with genetics and race. As a black student at Harvard that time, we took grave offense uh, to this book. This op-ed opened with a satirical uh, reference uh, to, to the statement that you just noted. This is satire? Absolutely, Senator. <laughs> this is satire. That's my favorite line. With me now is Michael Steele, former chairman of the RNC, and Reverend Mark Thompson, host of the Make It Flame podcast. Oh, Michael, I, I hate to put you in a position of having to explain these people. What do you mean, satire? Are you telling me that The Simpsons is not a documentary about a family from the Midwest? <laughs> um, okay, so so there's the, the two moments here, Joy, that I thought were just priceless, and if they can become a, a you know a gif, a meme, or whatever, they should happen. The first is after he set, opened up his comment with you know you you claim that black people are superior to white people, is that true? She had this look like oh, cannot be that stupid. And the second was when she said, um, well, I wrote that when I was 19. And as a black student at Harvard, just so we understand who you're talking to, mm -hmm. look, this is everything you you have said uh, leading up to this segment and in this segment about what we're looking at here. Um, incredible, talented, gifted black woman who's about to get the job. And they can't stop it. <laughs> I very proudly wrote a letter to all of them on my side and the other side on her behalf because I've worked with her. I know her. She's competent. She's careful. She's consistent. And she cares about doing the right thing for, yeah, our community, but for the entire country. So yeah. they can't handle that. Yeah, they can't, clearly. And meanwhile, uh, Mark, <clears throat> Senator Ron Johnson decided, hold my beer. Here he is doing a Tucker plus one and saying replacement theory. Hell yeah. <laughs> this administration wants complete open borders. And you have to ask yourself, why is it really they want to remake the demographics of America to ensure they're that they stay in power forever? Is that what's happening here? Mark, why is replacement uh, theory now mainstream in the Republican Party? What is happening? Well, thanks for having me, as always, Joy. It, um, they are desperate and they have nothing else to do. Even this whole border thing, they've manufactured a crisis because they can't find a scandal that will stick to Joe Biden. They are counting on their voter suppression plans. And Kristen Clark thwarts those. You know, uh, Michael and Joy, I'm having a bit of deja vu because it kind of reminds me of Lonnie Guineer. You know, again, mm -hmm. an, another determined and capable African-American yeah. woman. You know, there's a war against brilliant African-American women like Kristen Clark, whether they're attorneys, or activists right now. Uh, and we need to be mindful of that. But but they they're desperate. They don't know uh, what to do. They have no plan. They've presented no policy, no agenda. 
So they have to manufacture all of these uh, false means. You know, Michael, I'm old enough to remember when the plan was to try to get more black folks to vote for Republicans. Right. And now it, it appears that, that instead they're like, or we'll just become a white interests party and see if we can dredge up more votes among angry people who are angry and, and white folks who are angry about the demographic changes in America. It does feel like the party has decided that the future is to just be a white interests party. And that seems like a dangerous yeah. place for a major political party to be. Well, at this point, after five years of Donald Trump, what else do you have left? Uh, you, you have locked yourself in that corner. You have bought into that narrative. And now, as you noted, they're, they're you know, leveling up these theories uh, on demographics and race. And here's the rub for Senator Johnson, just to help you out, brother, understand this. We don't need a theory. We don't need you to go pull some book. It's happening in front of your eyes, Right. Black and brown people are growing in number. Asian community numbers are growing. So you can't you can't stop people and their in their natural progression. They're having babies, man. All right. Yeah. And they're and these and they're being born here. So you can't take their citizenship away. You can make all kind of noise you want at the border. But the reality of it is the demographics of the country is, are changing. And you either yeah. get with that or you get rolled over by it as a party. And as a senator who's trying to do whatever you're trying to do. I mean, it's like George Washington enslaving a thousand people and calling them all Washington, whatever their original names are. And then people going, well, how come all, all, all the Washingtons I meet are black? It's called math. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, let me go to you, Mark, because I feel like the next sort of things that are going to set the Republicans off are already on the agenda. It's D.C. statehood that they're going to wig out over because that's a black that would be a, a majority black state. It's the reparations bill, which you noted. We were yes. texting about this yesterday, just passed through its first like test to get to the floor it, it, on the reparations bill specifically. How much of a war do you expect that to ignite? Um, and do you expect the speaker to move forward on it, given the climate that we're in right now? She has said in the past that she will. Um, so we're going to trust the speaker on that uh, for now. But we're going to make sure she knows that that's something that needs to happen. That's a heavy agenda and a heady agenda. When you talk about statehood and reparations uh, in, in this context facing Republicans, that's kind of revolutionary. But we, we welcome it, of course. Um, in terms of reparations, it's interesting because at the, the hearing last night, um, what was interesting, they debated reparations far less than they debated um, what they call court packing. Um, they wanted to talk about the thing. And it was like what and everyone kept saying, that's not what we're here to talk about. That's not appropriate. It's not even been introduced as legislation. But they really didn't have an argument for reparations. In fact, every time they brought up uh, something about slavery, they would blame the Democrats. But the fact of the matter is, a Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Not only did he free the slaves, if he had not been enslaved, I should say, if he had not been assassinated, uh, we would have probably had reparations. So I, I think it seems like <laughs> they're avoiding yeah. a specific argument. Yeah. Um, and we'll just have to see where it goes. We're going to go forward. And if the Senate doesn't pass, we'll ask yeah. Biden to do executive we'll order. We, we, will, we shall see. Uh, Michael Steele, Reverend Mark Thompson, thank you both. That's tonight's readout. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays. 
video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.